We've been journeying for the last couple of weeks through the Gospel of Luke, looking at Christ who is coming near the arriving light. And so let me just catch up, uh, those of you who haven't been here the last couple of weeks, the Gospel of Luke opens up and Luke writes to Theophilus and he tells him that this is meant to buttress, to secure, to make strong his faith. And so as we read these things, as we look towards this Christmas narrative that is taking place in the unfolding Gospel of Luke, it is not primarily written to create a sense of, oh, I remember when. Or, or, oh man, I remember this one Christmas when my grandmother lit my grandfather's hair on fire. That was insane. What's your grandfather doing have such long hair that it would catch on fire anyway? That's the primary question we would have to answer in that story. But as we journeyed through, we, we saw the angel appear to Zechariah, to this one who was past childbearing age, to he and his wife, and, and the angel tell them that they would bear a child, that this child would also prepare the way for Jesus, for the Messiah that was coming. We saw the angel appear to the Virgin Mary, and, 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 and in that we saw him move from the improbable, someone with great age becoming pregnant, to the impossible, a virgin becoming pregnant, and then we saw these stories combine, come together, as Mary and Elizabeth greeted one, one another. But, but in this vein, what we see today in this reading from 57 through 66 is this small picture of redemption. We kind of look at Zechariah and say he's a minor character, and, and we, we almost tolerate his presence in the text because we're really not quite sure what to make of it. How do we look at this guy and apply his, those things he's going through to our lives? What then can we take away from this text? But what we see, and I want you to focus on this and look for this as we journey through this, there is a beautiful picture of redemption in the life of Zechariah, and it's found in verses 57 through 66. Let's journey through together. Verse 57 says, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown to her great mercy, and they rejoiced with her. So in 57 and 58, we see this reintroduction to the theme of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now if you flip back over into chapter 1 and verse 24 we find that when Elizabeth becomes pregnant, she has an interesting response. Now, this is a woman who's lived the extent of her life desiring to have children, but unable. Desiring to have children, but unable. And at the moment she recognizes that she's pregnant, she doesn't send a little you know, text to her friends. She doesn't drum up everybody and say, come see the awesome thing that's taking place. She doesn't beat the doors of everybody in the neighborhood saying, you're not gonna believe it, like I'm old. And so people called me barren, but I am pregnant. In fact, she becomes pregnant, and she did this. She hid herself. She hid herself. Look at that, verse 21. Verse 21 or 24. She says, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months, she kept herself hidden. For five months, she kept herself hidden. For five months, nobody knew. I mean, she's seeing people in the market, and, and they had this awkward thing of, you know, is she, isn't she? You never want to ask that question. You never want to say, so are you, bruh? Like, you can't pull those words back. Those are one of the two things you can't pull back. Uh, asking somebody if they're pregnant, finding out they're not, and guessing at someone's gender. Two things you should never do. I've never done the pregnancy thing and only the gender thing once, but it was over the phone, and in all defense, uh, she sounded like a man. 
I'm not a sir. <laughs> You're an avid smoker. I don't. And so, so five months she kept herself hidden. And, and, but what we're not told in the text is to what extent she let people know she was pregnant. Obviously, Mary knows she's pregnant. She's journeyed over there. But at this time, when she emerges, this is the way that people witness this. This is the way people understand those things that have taken place in her life. Her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her in recognizing this child that would be born to Elizabeth and Zechariah. They recognized it, not primarily, it's just a great thing that had happened to them, but they saw the mercy of God being visited upon them. They saw the mercy of God moving in their lives. And look at this, they rejoiced with them on behalf of the mercy of God. Recognize that some of the times God brings us through tremendous difficulties. And we have this almost continuous reflection upon it we say things are going really well but i just don't want to tell anybody yet in case it all just craps out i don't i don't i don't want to tell anybody yet in case it all just falls away but what we see in this picture is that they come together and they rejoice with her upon the moment of god's blessing being bestowed upon them in their life the birth of this child what we see from this reaction of Elizabeth is, is this one of when people found out that this child had been born, they rejoiced at the blessing of God. They rejoiced at the sweet mercy of God that had come upon her in her life. The blessings of God, his mercies visited upon us in our lives are not things that we selfishly hold on to, but they're things we invite others into. They're not things we selfishly hold on to and try and keep to ourselves and within our nuclear family, but they're things we extend to those around us, recognizing that God has created us in such a way that we dwell in community with others. And her community that had witnessed her going through a lifetime of difficulty was able to come and to rejoice with her. And friends, that's a sweet blessing. Having people that would go through the difficult times with you is amazing. But having people that you can trust enough to come and be around you and recognize not primarily that it's a good thing that's happened to you in your life, but it's a sweet blessing and mercy of God being visited upon you. So having friends that would recognize the mercy of God coming to you in your life, that's what she has here. And they rejoice with her. Now look here in verse 59. As any good Jewish family does, they go to have the child circumcised on the eighth day. They're, they're keeping in line with what God had laid down for them in Leviticus 12. They're going to have the child circumcised. They want to, to visibly display the covenant blessings of God in the act of circumcision. That's what they're going to do. But something curious happens. In this, it says, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. We recognize this child is not yet named. It's not yet named. And so they go and they gather around. It would typically be the most senior member of the family who would perform the circumcision. So this family is gathered around. And we find that the buzz around those in Zechariah and Elizabeth's family is, is they want to call the child Zechariah after his father. Now what do we know about Zechariah so far? He's unable to engage in conversation. He's unable to hear what people are saying. He's unable to audibly respond to what people are saying. And still, those in their community want to name him after his father. Well, look how the mother responds, verse 60. But his mother answered, no. Now, within the English language, we find that the subtlety of the word no has tremendous impact on those who think that will go along with what they say. 
And so you can almost imagine if she's being railroaded into this, this is the hubbub kind of created, and everybody's saying, oh, yeah, of course we're going to call him Zechariah. Of course we'll call him Zach, obviously, because we're going to shorten it, and we need to be able to say Zechariah and recognize that's the husband, and Zach and recognize that's the son. And she just stands up in the middle of it, and she says, no. All this buzz of conversation that was taking place around her you can imagine this dawning recollection along everybody's faces, and they say, what? She, she, what? She said, she, said, she said no. She's interrupting, she's interjecting into everybody this presumed name that they, would la- that they would put upon the child, and she just says no. And then she says something that they would not expect. She says, he shall be called John. It's not that she's a fan of John Wayne. It's not that this is... You know, her best friend that she always wanted to name him after. Flip back to verse 13. Back in chapter 1. The angel Gabriel had shown up to Zechariah. And the angel in verse 13 says, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you shall call his name John. What we see here in Elizabeth's move is the plan and providence of God. Now, the text does not tell us, but we're able to guess one of two things happened. Either the Holy Spirit put it upon her that the child's name would be John, or Zechariah was able to scrawl out at some point in the last nine and a half to ten months, depending on when she became pregnant, that the child's name would be John. But she is moving in line with being obedient to the revealed will of God. Tremendous that we see in here this movement of obedience upon Elizabeth. For all these months, she's been treasuring those things God would do in her life, and now the child is born, and we recognize that the first obstacle she overcomes is the the push, the pressure of those gathered around her to name the child something that would seem normal. Now, typically, the child was named after their grandfather, but it was not completely unheard of to name them after their father, but it was... It was a pretty radical decision to name the child something outside of the family name. I don't really uh, understand this as much. This is something that when Valerie and I started talking about the names of the kids that she was much more inclined to do than I was. Um, Some of my family names aren't nearly as exciting as her family's names. But all of our kids have some type of family name. And so it's something that, that people have become to expect from us and so each child and so my middle name is my dad's brother's middle name uh is that what i said my middle name is yeah and then bryce's middle name had to think through this for a second bryce's middle name is the same as my middle name and so we go on down graham's middle name is the same as valerie's grandfather's first name and then wyatt's middle name our recent child our most recent addition his middle name is valerie's dad's middle name We're, we're big on middle names i don't know what to tell you so it makes sense for us, but within the concept of this family here, she says, John, and everybody around her says, wait a minute, you can't do that. That's, you have none of your relatives, none of your families, none of your neighbors are called by this name, but she moves in line with the revealed will of God, being obedient to what God had said. She names him John. Now, this is important because look, what, look at the result, the end of verse 63, and they all wondered. On the, basis of her, on the basis of her reaction to the word of God, on the basis of her reaction to following through and being obedient, their reaction to her obedience is one of wonderment. 
begin to puzzle in their minds and in their hearts, why in the world would she do such a thing? And look what happens next. They didn't like it, verse 62, and they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And his name is John. As we go through this, we recognize that Zechariah is sitting there, unable to hear, unable to speak. And so this, this group that, that, that didn't much care for this unorthodox approach to naming begins to make signs. They begin to enter into this classic picture of first century charades with him. You know, first name sounds like one syllable. Yeah. And like, I can't read lips. I don't know how he's doing this. But somehow they're conveying to him that the name that his wife has chosen for this child is not kosher. It's not something that, that the community is comfortable with. It's not something that they want him to adhere to. And they suspect that Zechariah would not be thrilled about this. I mean, you can imagine the conversation. I mean, I bet if he could talk, he'd be like, uh-uh, it's going to be Zechariah, or it's going to be my dad's name, but it's, who is this John character? Where did this name come from? That's what they suspect that he would respond to. But in the midst of this, Zechariah extends, he takes a tablet, this small piece of wood, with wax across the front, and he begins to painstakingly scrawl out the letters. He turns it over and he shows it to them. And it doesn't say, he will be John. It says, his name is John. This gives us an indication that from the very moment that Zechariah lost the ability to speak, from the very moment he heard the prophecy from the angel Gabriel, he recognized that this child's name was already given to it prior to birth through the uh, pregnancy process. And from the moment it emerged... Its name was John, is John, and will always be John. On the basis of the angel's prophecy, on the basis that this is the way God had laid it up, on the basis that this is the word that God had given to him to be obedient to. And look what it says, and they all wondered. Now up until this point, Zechariah's been mute. He's been unable to speak. He's been unable to hear. His responses have been limited to scrawling something out, a piece of parchment, a piece of uh, board with some wax on it, as he does in this case. But in this moment, verse 64 says, And immediately his mouth was opened, and his tongue loosed, and he spoke. To understand the gravity of what's taken place in the life of Zechariah, we have to go back and kind of recap it. Flip back over to 118. The angel Gabriel had shown up and had told him in the midst of his duties that his wife would become pregnant and that they would bear a son. And so just kind of refreshing the situation, Zechariah chosen one out of 18,000 men to go in and to offer the sacrifice before the Lord, to offer the incense. This is a once-in-a-lifetime, once-in-a-career opportunity to go in and offer this sacrifice before the Lord. And so Zechariah did not find himself in the midst of, of, of being lazy in his spiritual pursuit. In fact, if you went back to verse 6, you'd find that he and his wife were both righteous and that they were blameless in all of the statutes and commandments of the Lord. Luke 1, 6. They were walking 
in complete righteousness before God. And it's in that vein, it's in that moment that Zechariah gets called up, one in 18,000, to go and to offer the sacrifice before God. So it's in that moment. In that moment of being incredibly close to God, for us in our vernacular, this kind of hilltop moment, this mountaintop moment. You're incredibly close to God. It's not that you haven't read the Bible in a while. It's not that your prayer life is anemic. He is as close to God as he has been in the course of his life. Professionally, this is the pinnacle of professional success for him, of opportunity for him. He goes in there, and it's in the midst of this that he has an encounter with the angel of the Lord. The angel comes to him and says, you and your wife, you're going to conceive. And Zechariah's response in verse 18 is what is, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. I'm old, and she's ancient. I'm old, but I'm a man. You know I can do this, but she's advanced in years. Like, how is this going to be? We're past the age. Like, we're looking for somebody to take care of us. We're not looking for someone to take care of. And the angel responds. Verse 20, behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. On the basis of Zechariah's mistake, of his failure, his punishment was the inability to hear, the inability to speak. And so for nine and a half, ten months, however long it took for his wife to become pregnant after this, he's unable to engage. It's just a man in his thoughts. There's nothing to distract him. There's nothing to, for him really to be able to engage in. Communication is difficult for him. He doesn't have a phone and able just to text out. He doesn't have a computer. He's not blasting emails. He's not walking around with a notepad doing these things. Even basic writing would be something he would have to restrict because the mediums just aren't that available. The things to write on are, are not just readily available. So for this incredible length of time, all he's been able to ponder on is what this child would be. How the word of God would be enacted in his life. And so he sees promise after promise fulfilled. His wife does, in fact, become pregnant. She does, in fact, become pregnant. In that moment where our minds would be tempted to go to this place, I wish I had believed. I wish I'd I'd done that differently. I wish I'd responded a little differently. I wish I'd have paused a beat and said, one, two, three. Oh, that's great. That's fantastic. What shall his name be again? John. Okay, yes. But instead he blew it. Completely missed it. When he regains the ability to speak, we would expect that his response would say something about the failure that he's had. We would expect that his response would somehow meditate on his inability to get it. We'd expect that that this guy who's been unable to speak for nine and a half or ten months would come out and say, Finally, a lot of things. First, no, I don't like your lasagna. And secondly, but he comes out and in the midst of this, his response is to bless God. Think of what this communicates to us. God 
redeems the mistake of Zechariah. God moves mightily to redeem this man who had blown it in the midst of a spiritual high. And he comes out of it not, not, not bellyaching, not bemoaning his failure, but he comes out of it in the first opportunity he's given in displaying this redemption of the Lord, he blesses God. I mean, this tremendous display, and then look, look how people respond to him. Verse 65, And fear came upon all the neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all of the hill country of Judea, and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. The people recognized something completely different was afoot. They wanted to name him something outside of their family and the people wondered. Zechariah communicates that this is in fact the name he'll be given and they are struck with this. They, they wonder at it. But on the basis of hearing him Bless the Lord. On the basis of hearing this man who for the last 10 months or so was unable to speak, unable to communicate, unable to respond, on the basis of hearing him speak and him bless the Lord when he emerges from his silence, they all fear God. They recognize something incredibly significant has taken place on the basis of God's movement and Zechariah's response to it. They bless the Lord. Or he blesses the Lord and they fear God on the basis of this. And look how extended, extensively they talked about it. And all these things were talked about throughout the hill country. It's, it's much further than just their neighbors. It's much further than just their relatives. Everybody that could hear this story talked about it. Everybody that, that heard about the man who went in to offer the sacrifice that, that was no longer able to speak. And then they heard that, that when he emerged from his silence was blessing God, they all couldn't get enough of this story. They couldn't get enough of talking about it. And how, I wonder exactly what's going on with this. And it says they laid up in their hearts. They're treasuring this. They're thinking about this over and over and over again, wondering what exactly is this child going to be? Notice this question here. It's not who is he going to be. They're not asking the question of who is he going to be, what kind of man is he going to be, but what will this child be? They recognize that this child is destined for something. What then will he be? And we already know from the prophecy Gabriel gave to Zechariah that this child will be the one who prepares the way for the Lord. This child will be John the Baptist standing in the wilderness dressed oddly in the vein of Elijah, calling men and women to repentance and baptizing them in kind. He's laying their sin before them and calling upon them to respond to the sin in their life. This is what... John the Baptist will be. This is what this child will be. But we read this account, and we begin to wonder in our own minds, what does this say to me? You and I, most of us, our life stories are dissimilar to what we see in Zechariah. We're not righteous, we're not walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. We are scraping to get by. Many of you, if, if, if you were to write down a list of all your failures this week, you would be covering it up saying, I hope nobody sees this. Do we get to burn this at the end? 
I mean, this is kind of our lives. And so our failures don't come in the midst of spiritual highs. It's not that we go to, to youth camp. It's not that we go to some tremendous men or women's retreat. It's not that we've had these weeks and weeks and weeks of pouring over the scriptures, and then all of a sudden we slip. This is not the pattern of our lives. The pattern of our lives is more that we've neglected our Bible reading. We've neglected scripture memory. We've neglected living in community with one another. We've neglected prayer outside of blessing meals because no one wants indigestion. We've neglected all of these things, and then in the midst of it, this, this gradient slip towards sin has become such that we don't even recognize a time when we used to be close to God find ourselves in the middle of affairs, we find ourselves in the middle of addictions to pornography, to alcohol, to other things outside of God, we have given ourselves to the worship of false deities, to idol worship. We worship our jobs, we worship our families, we worship our prowess, worship our finances. We bow down at the altar of all those things we find superior to the sacrifice of worshiping God. This is the place we fail from. This is the place we mess up from. We find ourselves, haven't been in church in a long time, haven't been calling my accountability partner, whatever your plan and process is, and in the midst of this, we fail. And so we reflect back upon our failure and we say, if I had only been in church, if I had only been in community, if I had only been reading scripture, if I had only been fervent in prayer, I wouldn't have messed up. I wouldn't have messed up. I wouldn't have completely hosed my walk. I wouldn't have damaged my testimony if I had only been better. Look what we recognize in Zechariah couldn't do better. Luke writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit said this about Zechariah. He said he was holy, said he was walking in the statutes and commandments blamelessly before the Lord. He got it. And in that moment, he disbelieved. He failed. Zechariah failed from a moment of spiritual high. You and I fail from months, weeks of spiritual lethargy, of laziness. But we can both have the same return. That's what we see in Zechariah. He had months upon months to reflect upon the ways that he messed up. Imagine stepping up to the plate. It is on you. You can win the World Series for the Rangers. And, and seeing how the Rangers did this year, they might as well just have one of you up there. And so it is on you to win this game for the Rangers. You've been training, planning for this all your life. And you watch the pitches come by and you completely mess up. And you have the offseason to reflect on it. This is what our lives are like. From mistake to mistake, we have this period in between to reflect upon these mistakes we've made. For Zechariah, he had nine and a half, ten months to reflect upon the mistake that he made. And he could have spent that nine and a half, ten months beating himself up, going through this process of, oh man, if I just said something different, oh well, God can't use me now. But look what he did instead. 
he stayed true to the plan and purposes of God in spite of his failure. This is the God we serve. That whether you're at a spiritual high and you mess up, or whether you're at the lowest point of low, you haven't prayed in days, or whether you are far from God and considered that you might never come to salvation, God can redeem you. He can redeem you. Recognize that our God is not far off, but he is near, and he beckons you to come to all those who feel that they are beyond redemption. What we see within the pattern of Zechariah's life is you are not past the point of redemption. Don't let your pride keep you there. Romans 8. Romans 8, 31 through 34, Paul is reflecting not upon this account of Zechariah, but he's reflecting then on the account of, of opposition in the Christian life, failure in the Christian life. And verse 31 says, what shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And in verse 34, look at this. Who is to condemn? Who's to look at you in the midst of your failure and condemn you and say, you are far beyond the love of God. You are far beyond his ability to redeem. You are far beyond his ability to make right. Who then is eligible for this? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So he asked the question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Paul is writing this, seeking to communicate to you and to my stubborn heart, saying you cannot be far from the love of God. There is no natural consequence in life. There is no spiritual consequence in life that can keep you far from the love of God. Would that your pride would allow you to return. And keying in on this idea of intercession, the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews chapter 7. He says, starts in verse 24, he says, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever speaking of Jesus. And it's on the basis of Jesus' continual forever priesthood, verse 25, that consequently he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. God is able to save you. I meet people frequently who feel that they are beyond the veil, that they are beyond being able to be saved. Huh, preacher, you just don't know about me and about my life. You don't know about all the ways I've messed up. Or they talk about their life and they say, I had boundless opportunity. I had parents that loved me. I had, had athletic ability. I had intellectual capability i just blew it i was lazy i just blew it and I, I just need to suffer those consequences see god gave me many many chances but i really just need to suffer the consequences of my failure see what we recognize in the romans passage and in this passage here in hebrews key in on this word since he always lives to make intercession for them. The reason that you have an ability to come to God is on the basis of the intercession of Jesus Christ. 
This is terrific news for those who have never come to know him. You are spiritually dead. According to Ephesians 2, there are supernatural, internal, and external influences working against you. That God is rich in love and kindness towards you. That he sent his son Jesus to die for you. That you might come. That he might bid you come and be forgiven. To be redeemed. To receive the forgiveness of your sins. It's not that God calls you to be good, better, or best. He calls you to recognize in your fallen state, you can't overcome sin and death. He calls you to come and to freely receive the forgiveness offered in the person of Jesus Christ. This is where we all were. If you're a Christian in this room, there was a point in time when you were dead. You recognize your deadness, you recognize that God demanded perfection, and you clung to the promise of perfection offered in the person of Jesus Christ. For whatever reason, for whatever reason, in the course of our Christian's life in, in the course of our Christian life, we fail. Make mistakes. You slip up, and whether from it's a point of spiritual high or spiritual laziness, lethargy, we want to return ourselves back to the place of faithfulness again. Look what he says there. God is able to redeem your mistakes even after you come to know him on the basis of the fact that Jesus is always interceding for you. God loves you. His love for you once you come to know him, once you get saved, isn't the type of love that says, now I have saved you, now impress me with your ability to be perfect. God's love for you, his care for you, extends grace and mercy to you over the course of your Christian life, and it calls you in the midst of failure to rely upon the remediation of God. It calls upon you to rely upon the redemption of God, to receive it, to ask him for it, and to recognize that God, through Jesus Christ, is always making intercession for you, and especially in the midst of your failure. This is why Christianity is such a gracious message that we're able to give to others. It's why you're able to walk up as a Christian and say to somebody, come and be forgiven just as I am forgiven. It's why you're able to walk up to somebody and say, look, I'm in the midst of messing up. My wife and our relationship is terrible. I'm addicted to this. She's addicted to that. But God is redeeming that. We lean hard on the cross of Jesus Christ, not our own ability to get it right. One calls us to pharisaicalism. The other one calls us to lean upon the gracious nature and love of God. There's only one choice for the Christian. This is why there's no place for pride in the family of God. What is there to be prideful about? What is there to be prideful about? Today. Today we recognize that we need a fresh infusion of the forgiveness of God in our lives. To call upon him to forgive us for our pridefulness. To call upon him to forgive us for our indifference. And to allow him who began a good work in you to continue it through continuing to bring redemption into your life. Would you pray with me? Father, I just thank you that for those in this room who have professed faith in Christ, that you have redeemed us, you have called us from the dead into life, that you have breathed life 
into our lungs. We were spiritually dead and far off from you. And you have both brought us near into your glorious light and made us alive in Jesus Christ. And God, I pray for those who have surrendered their lives to you that they would surrender them again. You call us to surrender in forgiveness when we come to faith. God, help us not to be so prideful, so arrogant, and so misguided to think that we could get it right still. We are always dependent upon you and your grace, your forgiveness, your redemption and mercy. God, through the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray that you would work in our hearts to break us to that. Force us to call out to you, to plead with you for mercy. And Father, we pray for those who have yet to surrender themselves to you. That you would stir in their hearts and in their souls. That you would call them unto yourself. Help them to let loose of idols in this world. Help them to let loose of those things that are keeping them from coming to you. Father, that you would save them in spite of themselves. And we pray these things in the blessed name of Jesus. Amen.